Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. C.S. Lewis, Petitionary Prayer, A Problem Without an Answer, Part 1. The problem I am submitting to you arises not about prayer in general, but only about that kind of prayer which consists of request or petition. I hope no one will think that he is helping to solve my problem by reminding me that there are many other and perhaps higher sorts of prayer. I agree that there are. I here confine myself to petitionary prayer, not because I think it the only, or the best, or the most characteristic form of prayer, but because it is the form which raises the problem. However low a place we may decide to give it in the life of prayer, we must give it some place, unless we are prepared to reject both our Lord's precept in telling us to pray for our daily bread, and his practice in praying that the cup might pass from him. And as long as it holds any place at all, I have to consider my problem. Let me make clear at once where that problem does not lie. I am not at all concerned with the difficulty which unbelievers sometimes raise about the whole conception of petitioning God, on the ground that absolute wisdom cannot need to be informed of our desires, or that absolute goodness cannot need to be prompted to beneficence, or that the immutable and impassable cannot be affected by us, cannot be to us as patient to agent. All these difficulties are, no doubt, well worth most serious discussion but I do not propose to discuss them here. Still less am I asking why petitions, and even the fervent petitions of holy men, are sometimes not granted. That has never seemed to me to be, in principle, a difficulty at all. That wisdom must sometimes refuse what ignorance may quite innocently ask seems to be self-evident. My problem arises from one fact and one only the fact that Christian teaching seems at first sight to contain two different patterns of petitionary prayer which are inconsistent. Perhaps inconsistent in their theological implications, but much more obviously and pressingly inconsistent in the practical sense that no man, so far as I can see, could possibly follow them both at the same moment. I shall call them the A pattern and the B pattern. The A pattern is given in the prayer which our Lord himself taught us. The clause, Thy will be done, by its very nature, must modify the sense in which the following petitions are made. Under the shadow, or perhaps I should rather say in the light, of that great submission, nothing can be asked save conditionally, save insofar as the granting of it may be in accordance with God's will. I do not, of course, mean that the words, Thy will be done, are merely a submission. They should, and if we make progress they will increasingly, be the voice of joyful desire, free of hunger and thirst. And I argue, very heartily, that to treat them simply as a clause of submission or renunciation greatly impoverishes the prayer. But though they should be something far more and better than resigned or submissive, they must not be less. They must be that, at least. 
and as such they necessarily discipline all the succeeding clauses. The other specimen of the A pattern comes from our Lord's own example in Gethsemane. A particular event is asked for with the reservation, Nevertheless not my will, but thine. It would seem from these passages that we are directed both by our Lord's command and by his example to make all our petitionary prayers in this conditional form. Well aware that God in his wisdom may not see fit to give us what we ask, and submitting our wills in advance to a possible refusal, which, if it meets us, we shall know to be wholly just, merciful, and salutary. And this, I suppose, is how most of us do try to pray, and how most spiritual teachers tell us to pray. With this pattern of prayer, the A pattern, I myself would be wholly content. It is in accordance both with my heart and my head. It presents no theoretical difficulties. No doubt my rebellious will and my turbulent hopes and fears will find plenty of practical difficulty in following it. But as far as my intellect goes, it is all easy. The road may be hard, but the map is clear. You will notice that in the A pattern, Whatever faith the petitioner has in the existence, the goodness, and the wisdom of God, what he obviously, even as it were by definition, has not got, is a sure and unwavering belief that God will give him the particular thing he asks for. When our Lord in Gethsemane asks that the cup may be withdrawn, his words, far from implying a certainty or even a strong expectation that it will in fact be withdrawn, imply the possibility that it will not be. A possibility or even a probability so fully envisaged that a preparatory submission to that event is already being made. We need not, so far as I can see, here concern ourselves with any special problems raised by the unique and holy person of him who prayed. It is enough to point out that if we are expected to imitate him in our prayers, then, though we are doubtless to pray with faith in one sense, we are not to pray with any assurance that we shall receive what we ask. For real assurance that we shall receive it seems to be incompatible with the act of preparing ourselves for a denial. Men do not prepare for an event which they think impossible. And unless we think refusal impossible, how can we believe granting to be certain? And, once again, if this were the only pattern of prayer, I should be quite content. If the faith which is demanded of us were always a faith in the goodness of God, a faith that whether granting or denying he equally gave us the best, and never a faith that he would give precisely what we ask, I should have no problem. Indeed, such a submissive faith would seem to me, if I were left to my own thoughts, far better than any confidence that our own necessarily ignorant petitions would prevail. I should be thankful that we were safe from that cruel mercy which the wiser pagans had to dread, numinibus vota exaudita malignus, from Juvenal, enormous prayers which heaven in vengeance grants. Even as it is, I must often be glad that certain past prayers of my own were not granted. But of course, this is not the actual situation. 
Over against the A pattern stands the B pattern. Again and again in the New Testament, we find the demand not for faith in such a general and, as it would seem to me, spiritual sense as I have described, but for faith of a far more particular and, as it would seem to me, cruder sort. Faith that the particular thing the petitioner asks will be given him. It is as if God demanded of us a faith which the Son of God in Gethsemane did not possess, and which, if he had possessed it, would have been erroneous. What springs first to mind is, of course, the long list of passages in which faith is required to those whom our Lord healed. Some of these may be, for our present purpose, ambiguous. Thus, in Matthew 9.22, the words, Your faith has healed you, to the woman with the hemorrhage, will be interpreted by some as a proposition not in theology, but in medicine. The woman was cured by auto-suggestion. Faith in any charm or quack remedy would on that view have done as well as faith in Christ, though, of course, the power in Christ to evoke faith, even of that kind, might have theological implications in the long run. But such a view, since it will not cover all the instances, had better not be brought in for any, on the principle of Occam's razor. And surely it can be stretched only by extreme efforts to cover instances where the faith is, so to speak, vicarious. Thus, the relevant faith in the case of the sick servant, Matthew 8.13, is not his own, but that of his master, the centurion. The healing of the Canaanite child, Matthew 15.28, depends on her mother's faith. Again, it might perhaps be maintained that in some instances the faith in question is not a faith that this particular healing will take place, but a deeper, more all-embracing faith in the person of Christ himself. Not, of course, that the petitioners can be supposed to have believed in his deity, but that they recognized and accepted his holy, or at the very least, his numinous character. I think there is something in this view, but sometimes the faith seems to be very definitely attached to the particular gift. Thus, in Matthew 9.28, the blind men are asked not, Do you believe in me? But, do you believe that I can do this? Still, the words are, that I can, not that I will. So we may pass that example over. But what are we to say of Matthew 14.31, where Peter is called oligopista, because he lost his faith and sank in the waves? I should perhaps say, at this point, that I find no difficulty in accepting the walking on the water as historical. I suspect that the distinction often made between nature miracles and others seems plausible only because most of us know less about pathology and psychology than about gravitation. Perhaps if we knew all, the divine suggestion of a single new thought to my mind would appear neither more nor less a nature miracle than stilling the storm or feeding the five thousand. But that is not a point I wish to raise. I am concerned only with the implications of oligopista, for it would seem that St. Peter might have had any degree of faith in the goodness and power of God, and even in the deity of Christ, 
and yet been wholly uncertain whether he could continue walking on the water. For in that case his faith would surely have told him that whether he walked or whether he sank, he was equally in God's hands, and, submitting himself in the spirit of the Gethsemane prayer, he would have prepared himself, so far as infirmity allowed, to glorify God either by living or by drowning, and his failure, if he failed, would have been due to an imperfect mortification of instinct, but not to a lack, in that sense, of faith. The faith which he is accused of lacking must surely be faith in the particular event, the continued walking on water. All these examples, however, might be dismissed on the ground that they are not, in one strict sense of the word, examples of prayer. Let us then turn to those that are. Whether you will agree to include Matthew 21.21, I don't know. Our Lord there says, Aeon echta pistin kai me diacrotheta. If you have faith with no hesitations or reservations, you can tell a mountain to throw itself into the sea, and it will. I very much hope that no one will solemnly remind us that our Lord, according to the flesh, was an Oriental, and that Orientals use hyperboles, and think that this has disposed of the passage. Of course, Orientals and Occidentals use hyperboles, and of course our Lord's first hearers did not suppose him to mean that large and highly mischievous disturbances of the landscape would be common or edifying operations of faith. But a sane man does not use hyperbole to mean nothing. By a great thing, which is not literally true, he suggests a great thing which is. When he says that someone's heart is broken, he does not mean that this organ is literally fractured but he does mean that the person in question is in very great anguish. Only a windbag says his heart is broken when he means he's somewhat depressed. And if all Orientals were doomed by the mere fact of being Orientals to be windbags, which of course they are not, the truth himself, the wisdom of the Father, would not and could not have been united with the human nature of an Oriental. The point is worth making. Some people make allowances for local and temporary conditions in the speeches of our Lord on a scale which really implies that God chose the time and place of the Incarnation very injudiciously. Our Lord need not mean the words about the mountain literally, but at the very least they must mean doing some mighty work. The point is that the condition of doing such a mighty work is unwavering, unhesitating faith. Indeed, he goes on in the very next sentence to make the same statement without any figures of speech at all. Panta hosa an aitesete en te prasuke pistuantes lepsesta. Matthew twenty one twenty two, And whatever you ask in prayer you will receive, if you have faith. Can we even here take pistuantes to mean having a general faith in the power and goodness of God? We cannot. The corresponding passage in Mark, though it adds a new difficulty, makes this point at least embarrassingly plain. The words are Pantahosa prosukestha kai aitestha pistuata hoti elabata kai estai humin. The tense, present or worse still, aorist, 
is, of course, perplexing. I hope someone will explain to us what either might represent in Aramaic. But there is no doubt at all that what we are to believe is precisely that we get all the things we ask for. We are not to believe that we shall get either what we ask or else something far better. We are to believe that we shall get those very things. It is a faith, unwavering faith in that event, to which success is promised. Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, twill be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right. <laughs>